Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Bloody Angola, a podcast 142 years in the making. Complete story of America's bloodiest prison. I'm Jim Chapman. I'm Woody Overton. And we're back for part two, Woody Overton. Part two, second Second chances for our main man. Andrew Hunley, how are you? I'm well. I feel like we just talked to you. Yeah, Yeah, thanks for having me back. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, uh. Andrew, I just want to say that is an amazing story. Y'all, you got to go listen to part one. We've, I don't think we've maybe done one or two series on Bloody Angola that went, that actually series. That yeah. One or two episodes that went past episode one. The only one that we did was Archie Williams. No, uh, Brent Miller. And Brent, yeah. Yeah, and Brent yeah. Miller. So and maybe Brent two, you'll be the third. Yeah. Uh, um, so thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. And y'all go back and listen to the first one if you haven't. Yes, right. please do. And um, we were when we left off last. You were at um, State Police Barracks out at Just Tech, and you got to finish telling me how you got swung. <laughs> yeah, I had uh, unauthorized female visitor. Uh, you know, to keep it PG. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I had a, a female friend who, who visited me at the office I worked at uh, one evening. You know, I knew I was, that wasn't supposed to happen. Right. It happened. And, uh, and you know, the, because I had uh, – and, you know, I understand that, you know, keep visitors off of the premises is yeah. because, they, you know, you never know who's going to be coming right. out there, what they're going to be bringing out there. Right. So um, I ain't hating on it. I don't no, blame. I hate it. <laughs> was, was told I'm not the first guy to yeah, to right. get in trouble, at, and, and probably not going to be the last guy that got into that kind of trouble. But some things are just everybody marked. you see. Everybody you see today and the rest of your life is got there because two people had sex. Right? That's right. So, but it, you know, it was against the rules. So they sure. they actually didn't move me immediately because I, you know, my job that I had. They, they didn't they, want to they, lose you. They had yeah. to, I had to finish some job responsibilities, but you know they they said, "Hey, you're going to have to go," and uh, and and I said, "I want to if I want to go to Angola." And wow, before, right. before you say anything else, that's so. just I, like you're one of the only people I ever said that. <laughs> yeah, you might be the yeah. only one to utter that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I I recognized, and I had done enough time and met you know enough people who who had been to Angola and, and had you know who were. You know, this in prison taught speak were successful at yeah, Angola. Right, they right. they they had done well, and I wanted to be a trustee. And it, uh, you know, at, at state police barracks, I was a trustee. But the only place as a lifer going, you know, if we say back into DOC, I couldn't go to DCI right. or Wade or Hunt or any of these other prisons right. and be yeah. a trustee. I'd have to go to Angola. And what year was this? Oh, that was in two thousand. Um, Third, 2012, 2013. So it was post-Burl Kane or? No, no. Burl no, Burl was still there. Burl was still there. there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So uh, I, I go, um, uh, you know, when I, I first get there, I'm, I actually go to Bass. Mm-hmm. And uh, for my first couple months, uh, I, I was a cell block orderly at Bass, you know, paying my penance. And I, as soon as I got there, they told me, 
look, you know, stay, keep your nose clean, out of sight, out of mind for a couple months. Right. And we, we've got a, we've got a job for you. I think they told me this as soon as I got there. Well, so, yeah, wow. That's really cool. And I, your gonna, reputation preceded you yeah, somewhere. And, probably. and I'm going another unique thing about what you're saying is I don't think people understand. Uh, most people at Angola, I would say you, you might have a better number on it than me. Most people at Angola are never getting out like 80% or something like that. But to go in and have to do 10 years to make trustee without a low court or a high court write up. Holy shit, bro. That's almost impossible. So that basically, you know, they're telling you, keep your nose clean, lay low for a couple months and, and, you can shake it out. We got a job for you. So basically, you almost were like getting credit for time served already. Right. They like, gave, they yeah. gave me credit, and look, I had a unique experience. Meaning credit under the um, trustee program. I, I I used to tell people I did my time like Benjamin Button. Yeah. You know, Benjamin <laughs> Button. In reverse. Huh? He was bought, yeah, I did my time in reverse. People, you know, most people started Angola, and they're either going to die there, or right. you know, there's some old timers who, after they've been there for a few decades they'll allow to transfer to a, a prison closer to their home if, if right. they request it, if they if they have space. Um, so for me, I ended at Angle and did my, my, last, my last few years there. And uh, so I got to interrupt because I'm okay. visual. You asked to go to Angola. And had you ever been to Angola before? You know, I'd only been to, you know, I'd been boxing, there for boxing okay, matches. Okay, I had been there for, for those kind of trips. So you're taking that ride up, or they're giving you the ride up, and you hit the gates and you go inside the wire the first time. What, do you have any different impression? What was your yeah, impression? Yeah, I think I was thinking, oh man, I hope I made the right decision. Right, right. Because <laughs> hey, this starting, is like the Harvard of, well, of, of convicts. Yeah, because right? I'm starting to second guess because, you know, it's like, well, you know, if I would have gone back to the smaller prison, mm. I was big fish in a small right, pond. Right, right, right. And now, you know, I, I was telling myself, you know, you're just another lifer here. Right. Like you're going to be lost. In the shuffle, uh, but but thankfully I wasn't lost in the shuffle. Thankfully, my reputation did. You know, my I did have a good reputation. I'm sure somebody called and gave him a heads up, mm-hmm. say that you, you better yeah. get your hands on this dude because <laughs> he's the bomb, right? And uh, and and so I, I got there, and uh, you know, I, you go on this uh, review board as right. soon as you get there, right. and you know, it's medical, mental health, security, classifications. Thanks. And, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out where they're going to send you. And a lot of guys will start off in a cell block. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some guys will go in, in, into a medical facility. Some guys will be under mental health observation. And, you know, never having lived at Angola, but, you know, new Camp J is not right, the place to be. Right. And Don't send me to Camp J. They, you know, the, the major who was on the review board was like, hey, I, you know, I got a call about you. Let me... Let me see what they want, you know. And he's telling all, pretty much everyone on the review board, like right. someone's about to make a decision where this guy's going to go. We're not going to mm-hmm. make the decision. And uh, he gets off the phone and says, "We're sending them to to Bass." And I was like, "Okay." He's like, "Where where where is that?" And he's like, "You're going to Camp J." Yeah, I know. And I'm like, "Oh my god!" Yeah. I'm, like I I'm, I thought I'm coming here to be a trustee. Right, right. <laughs> hey, you sending me to like, lockdown? What? And I'm and I'm, I'm going to lockdown because I know yeah. you know you go to J when. When guys on death row screw up, yeah, they, they get uh, sent to J, right, to the right. cell blocks at J, because people would rather be in their cell on death row Absolutely. than well, be at J, because oh J is wild. And now, look, today, J has been shut down right, for right, a few years right. because it, like, talk Reason about it. for a, that. To, it's a place that, and, and look, there, Camp J is uh, four cell blocks and one dorm. Yeah. So they have a few guys in a dorm that are cooking for the guys there. They're right. taking care of the place, taking care of the yard. Uh, so when you hear Jay, you assume the cell block. And just having worked, you know, in the cell blocks, these are guys with significant mental health issues. Most of them, yeah. They're, th- they're, they're throwing feces on each other. Right. They're throwing stuff on the guards. They're, uh, they're guys who've been back there so long. And, you know, there's this mentality in prison, bar fighting. Mm. And you make enemies in a cell, and you, Never you, seen you throw stuff on so many people. You know, you've seen this guy. He comes out on the tier for right. a shower. Y'all, y'all stay up all night cursing at each other because right. that's just how time's done. And then 
you get into it with so many people, you're back there a couple of years and they say, okay, it's your time to come out. Like, oh no, I can't go into population because right. uh-huh. I've made so, I've threw crap on so many people. Right. And what these guys don't realize is, look, all of y'all have thrown crap on each other. Right. Y'all have all cursed each other out, talked about threatening to kill each other. Like, you know, you get out, chances are, all right, man, we're in population now. We're going to put that stuff behind us. But so many of those guys... You know, they've developed these enemies, and then they just dig their hole deeper and right. deeper. So they're guys who've been back there decades right. and do not and refuse to come out of their yeah, cells. Yeah, and so, so the listeners know, um, like you're talking about, to get even – to get sent to Camp J, not the dormitory, but to get um, housed in a cell in Camp J, you had to do something – you had to break a rule in prison, not just regular fist fighting. It's fighting with weapons or attacking an officer or raping someone or whatever it may be. It's a serious, serious. infraction. It's not how uh, you don't, other than you, you don't get classified and sent to Camp J immediately, right? Most of most people, you, right. you, you get sent to wherever. And then if you're so bad that you can't follow the major rules inside, now, those rules, those rule infractions, or they could be a street charge too. And, 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 but if you're so bad that you can't live in the general population with the worst of the worst, what's considered to be the worst of the worst in, in, in America, you got sent to Camp J and and, uh, it's huge mental issue. Uh, I agree with you. Like 90% of that shit is mental. It's uh, they, they call it the behavioral management. Yeah. Right. (laughs) <laughs> that means that's they, they one way of putting lock them up and the throw reason away the that key. they had to shut it down was you know it's an old cell block right. and guys were figured you know uh, they couldn't repair the cells guys would open up cells right. jump but, on guards yeah. oh jump my on other guys and so whenever they sent me they said bass which is the name of the dormitory right. the general population dorm right. that for the guys that work and serve them. yeah so luckily it's like no no we're just we're sending you back here. And, it, you know, they did me a favor because it's like, hey, they recognized you're this guy that's done a lot of time. You, um, you know, we have something in mind for you. So we're just we're going to put you in on time out yeah. and, uh, and 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 show you what the worst of the worst could be if you want to fuck up. Yeah. 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 So so after they, they told me, you know, give us a couple months. So those couple months. And then it's like no one else talks to me after that. And I remember, you know, day 30, day 45, I'm thinking to myself, you know, these people told me you know, they've forgotten all about me. Right. <laughs> and God. I, I remember seeing the the, the warden uh, of the, the assistant warden over the camp who um, after I'd been there about two months and said, hey, I don't know if you remember me. And he's like, yeah, I remember you. It's like, OK, you, you know, you haven't. You know, you haven't looked at me. You haven't acknowledged right. me. Just want to make sure. He said, You're, have you hit your two months yet? I'll hit my two months at the end of this week. He said, okay, we'll see what happens. And two days after I hit my, you know, two months there, they, um, you know, came to me and said, hey, we're moving you to Camp F, and you're going to be working out on the range crew. We're going to make you the clerk on the range crew. Cool. That's awesome. So what it ended up being, you know, obviously Camp F is the, you know, old timer camp, right. Class A trustee. I was, I was in my thirties. I was the youngest guy at Camp right. F <laughs> by like twenty years. Yeah, <laughs> there, you know, you know, the youngest guy. There may have been guys that weren't quite that much older than me, but I, I go back there and I have this job, and I didn't even, I didn't realize how great of a job they were giving me. You know, eighteen thousand acres. Uh, the thing that's awesome about the range crew is you have trustees that get to leave whatever camp, you know, leave the main prison, get outside the fence, be on the property. But the thing that's awesome about the range crew is the cattle there aren't on just one little spot of the prison. There's, there's cattle throughout, you know, from the front to the back of the prison. So wow. when, you, when you're on the range crew, you have access to the entire prison. And when I say the entire prison, I mean the, the property, right. you know. Um, so, so you were a cowboy. I was a cowboy. I wasn't born a cowboy, right. <laughs> um, and I and I learned how to be, you know, learned how to ride a horse. Oh, that's um, awesome. Learned, you know, uh, learned how to take care of cattle. Uh, but the the cows at Angola are on two thousand head of cattle. Uh, you know, not counting the bulls, um, and, and not counting any, you know, given time of the year when mamas are dropping calves. There are actually, you know, a lot more cattle there, but um, every Cow 
is on state property control. You know, they're branded, they're tagged. Oh, my God. Uh, I when, whenever John, when yeah. John Kennedy was state treasurer, he used to give DOC hell when, you know, how the heck do you lose a cow? Right. Yeah. And I was a guy that if I read that in the paper, I would think the same thing. Well, how the heck yeah. do you lose a cow? Yeah. And I learned, you know, on 18,000 yeah, acres, it's, it's really, really easy, easy to lose <laughs> a cow. Because if a cow goes in a drainage, uh, you know, a drainage canal and right. dies, or and gator gets it, you're, you're, you're hoping that the buzzards are going to tell right. you where yeah. they are. So part of my job was to to keep up of with the cattle that were on state property control, and to do continuing inventories, order order the meds, order the vaccines, uh, along with you know just general responsibility, clerical responsibilities yeah. around the range. You, you have. A- a brain that I don't because my entire state career every fucking year when I had to fill out these property forms and serial numbers and I hated that shit I mean I'd rather be kicked in the nuts and they have to fill out one of those and you were doing it every day all across the whole scale and then another you know job responsibility I had once I got the job was uh uh, you know, assisting with the management of the rodeo as it relates uh, to oh, wow. you know, as it relates to the rides. So, in my job, I was responsible for the fall and spring rodeos to get the riders signed up and to assign the rides. You know, there are people who who have the stock contractor come in. There's obviously, you know, Alan Barton and and his crew are managing what's going on. You know, in, in, inside the arena, there are acts coming in. Uh, you know, security is getting the public in. There's the hobby craft. There's the concessions. So, but the guys that are participating, someone has to organize them. Someone has to decide who's getting what ride. Right. And it's sort of interesting because that's really a high-pressure thing because everyone yeah, wants pressure, a ride yeah. and everyone, you know, wants to be uh, on this shoot. And so, you know, my responsibility was being the guy that fairly distributed rides for people who signed up. And wow. in the middle of the rodeo, you have guys who are – you know they're 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 on a horse and, and then they hurt themselves. But later in the day, they were supposed to be on the poker table. So like I have to keep track of that and you know replace them in real time. So wow, so, did you have anybody helping you? Um, I had people that would help me, but I'm the kind of guy that. You know, yeah, yeah. Enjoys, yeah, nobody's gonna do it. Nobody's gonna do it as good as you. That's a lot of shit. Struggle with delegation. You were the yeah, CEO of, of, of everything that you know. The state workers. Yeah. yeah. Well, if hey, it's yeah, if yeah. you do it, you know it's done right. Yeah, right. <laughs> or if it's wrong, it's your fault. You know, and that's important. But I, I can remember people ask me often, you know, about you know what what I'm missing. Um, you know, I I think there'll come a point in my career where, you know, I'll, I'll move out in the country, get a piece of property and have cow. Because there are days, you know, when you work around cattle, you uh, you just get this gunk in your nose at the end of the day, yeah. especially when we're pushing cows, uh, you know, got them in a catch pen, working them. And uh, you, you just get all this muck in your sinuses. And I, I miss that. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I had to be in prison and, you know, to, to really feel this uh, – or this sense of, you know, purpose and enjoying, you know, I, I there were times I'd forget I was in prison. Right. I'd forget I had wow. a life sentence because like I was, so I, was in, I was yeah. in nature. Yeah. I was working right. around these animals, you know, got run over people. You know, I think people have this idea that, you know, this this Brahma bulls the 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 meanest uh thing that you could come across and know a, a mama cow that you're 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 pulling a baby from We'll run your ass over. Come yeah. on, yeah. I've been run over. Yeah. I've been run over <laughs> quite a few times yeah. and been kicked by cabs. So it just it was a it was a great experience for me and and just. But the other thing I should say about my experience at Angola that was totally different from everywhere else I had been. Obviously, you know I was an outlier everywhere else I was having a life sentence, and I would see people, you know, come and go. Uh, there were a handful of lifers that weighed, a handful of lifers at DCI. Uh, but when you get to Angola, everyone has life right. or everyone has 50, 100 years. They're not going right. to do that sentence. You every once in a while got a guy that somehow ended up at Angola that's going to be going home. But that's that's the outlier. And, uh, I, you know, got to meet so many older guys who um, had been there for decades and, you know, uh, 
some of the best people I ever met with in my life I met in prison. Right. And they were in prison for murder. And yeah. I know that the general public can't get that or they think I must be twisted to see that, but you you see who a person becomes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm not meeting people in their worst moment. I'm meeting people, yeah. you know, years later after, you know, they've they've developed They've taken responsibility for whatever brought them to prison, and they've, they've changed their lives. So I think you know that had a big impact, and you know, frankly, seeing a lot of death at Angola, um, going to going to funerals at Angola, yeah. uh, and, and seeing people buried, um, and and their headstone being on the yeah. penitentiary property, it's yeah. life changing. And we did it, uh, an episode on the uh, lookout point, and 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 the. The call for making and, and all that stuff that Burl really stepped up the game on. That's um, exactly right. Yeah, you know what we missed an episode? That, that my mama sent me the article afterwards. Uh, uh, Governor Edwards yeah. was actually, they had him, um, They had when he passed, they had them make his coffin and he was buried, but then his wife or some family member had him uh, dug up and cremated but so uh, we did billy grams we did uh, billy cannons yeah we we definitely talked about that and and it'd be a good point to bring up you know burl kane brought two very very important things to angola in my opinion he brought religion and he brought education at a level no prison had ever seen in the country. One of, you know, uh, everybody makes mistakes. Burl was, became very, very powerful. And and uh, with that, there became maybe some problems. But uh, uh, probably the most well-known warden in the history of the country, right, I would I say. Agree. Would you agree? And did you ever have any dealings with him? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my favorite story about Burl, and he would do this to a lot of people, and, you know, you always knew Burl was the boss. Yeah. Um, and Burl had, had the vision, and, you know, if you were going to work for Burl, you were going to carry things out the way Burl wanted it done. Burl uh, had a whiteboard in the ranch house where he would often hold court around lunch. Uh, you know, if there was an assistant warden, staff member who had to see Burl, Burl had a, a convict, he wanted to come see him. You get called up to the ranch house, and he had a whiteboard. And Burl used to draw a circle on the whiteboard and then put a dot in the middle of it. And then he'd hand you the marker and say, he says, that's where I am. I'm the dot. Show me where you are. Are you in the circle? Are you outside the circle? That's pretty awesome. And he would tell you, draw it. I want to see. Where are you? And if you'd put that dot, you know put that dot inside the circle next to him. So, well, let me know if you're with me, because if you're not with me, we'll draw your dot on side, outside of the circle. So that's, yeah, I think yeah. that's a perfect sort of Legit. encapsulation of who he is. Um, you know, 100%. he had a vision. He, he knew how he, he wanted to do it. Uh, you know, obviously it's hard to stay in one place as long, you know, he was at Angola over 20 years. Right, yeah. That's unheard of. No one will ever be warden of the but, penitentiary. You know, he, he actually turned down, I know this off the record, yeah. that, um, Numerous times, and and actually tapped Jim in the ball to be a head of the Department of Corrections. He turned it down. Yeah. He, he believes in so much in what he was doing in Angola and shit. I, I saw when he was warden at DCI when I started, but I trained at Angola and and I think it was Camp F is where the uh, yeah. Yes. So I slept in a dormitory there and and everything. But my mom was raised on the beat line, yeah. uh, but so we say bloody Angola, complete story of America's blessed. You know that's more of a catch-all, uh, yeah. Because it certainly, it's, it's not a nice place to be, but it, it's certainly not the nineteen sixty-five, sixty-six when it was when, when they had inmate guards and, and yeah. shit like that. So Burl did make actually the I, I forget the name certification program. It, it's a national thing run by the government uh, post. Uh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that, that certifies prison, but that is, you got to you, you know. Really, oh, ACA. All, that's it, ACA. But, uh, American Corrections Accreditation, something like mm-hmm. that. But he, but Angola was nowhere near that when Burrow got there. Yeah, and and, and and he did all that too. Right, and and uh, and uh, you know, leader of men. There's no doubt about it. And now, I believe the head of the Mississippi, yeah, Department of yep. Corrections. Correct. Yeah. And so the most listeners don't know. The Montgomery case comes out. How did you learn about it? How did you hear about it? And what happens next? So, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court 
actually, you know, has made a series of decisions that, you know, affected how we sentence juveniles. I mean, it's not that long ago. The first decision where they looked at adolescent brain science was Roper. And it was new science. It's sort of like what everyone who was a kid or had kids knew. Kids are immature. Kids are impulsive. Um, In the Roper decision, that's when they said you can't execute a juvenile anymore. I mean, that's just in the last couple of decades that we haven't been able to execute. The Supreme Court said stop executing juveniles. I I was a police officer when that that came out. And uh, they said, you know, hey, kids, kids are different from adults and we have to treat them different than adults. And so eventually there was the Miller decision and all these decisions, you know, we're in prison, we're watching the news, we're reading the newspaper, we're we're keeping up with it. You know, the guys who are going down the rabbit hole, staying in the law library Mm. are telling everyone what's happening. And, you know, so, so we're just watching it. And there was the, the Miller decision um, came out in 2012 and that decision said that you can't give a juvenile a mandatory life without parole sentence. Well, if you remember in the first episode, I said when my judge sentenced me, there was only one sentence. Mandatory without. So if my judge would have had an option and gave me life anyway, the Supreme Court decision wouldn't have affected me because the Supreme Court didn't say you can't give a juvenile a life without parole right. sentence. They said it couldn't be mandatory. Right. And you, you have to consider – you know, the, the, a judge has to have uh, leeway. So, but Louisiana and some other southern states. Yes, they still fought it. Uh, we're fighting it, the right. retroactivity right. because they say, okay, well, this only affects new cases. It can't affect all these old cases. So I actually went back to Acadia Parish in 2013 after Miller. I was fortunate my family could afford to hire an attorney for right. me. Uh, the, the judge who was there for my trial was still on the bench. Oh, wow. And he agreed for me to come back in. And he said, now I have an opportunity to give you a different sentence. I'm wow. going to sentence you to parole, you know, life with parole. And I'm going to let the department of corrections figure out what that means. Because there wasn't a law in the book that, that said, what does, you know, life is still life in Louisiana, whether right. you're a juvenile or not. So the, the parole board wouldn't schedule a parole hearing for me, obviously, because, you know, th- there's nothing that, right. that says that. Set, set it, the precedent. Yeah, right. and, and we're hearing from all of our attorneys that this this isn't going to affect old cases. So in uh, January of 2016, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in a case called Henry Montgomery, yeah. Baton Rouge case. Um, a, a black guy, he was 17 years old uh, when he shot an East Baton Rouge sheriff's I deputy. You know, not to um, you know to, to 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 argue that case. You know, Henry he 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 shot someone who happened to be a sheriff's officer. He didn't know it was a sheriff's right. officer, but still, he shot a he, right. he shot a sheriff's deputy, and he was held accountable and um, and was you know initially given the death penalty. Ended mm-hmm. up with a life sentence. Uh, so his case made it to the Supreme Court, and I remember. We initially thought, man, that's such a bad case to make right. it to the Supreme Court because we, you know, everyone in prison knows, like, you, you don't. When it involves a police officer. You don't commit yeah. a crime against a police officer right. because you're not going to get any mercy. Well, and so the listeners now, they, when it's submitted to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has a, a right to turn down the hearing of a case. Yeah. They don't have to hear it. Right. Yeah. So they agreed to hear it, and in January of 2016, they, re- they reviewed it favorably. And what Henry Montgomery, what his attorneys were arguing was that Miller's retroactive, and it yeah. affects Henry mm-hmm. and people who've already been in prison, uh, not just new cases, and the Supreme Court agreed. And uh, it put me at the front of the line. And when, we, when he says the front, the very front. The, the very front, and it's not because I obviously wasn't the person who served the most time. You know, I wasn't the person who had the most certificates. I wasn't the person, you know, who I, I, I was at the front of the line because, you know, most other guys in my position, they couldn't afford to hire attorneys. Yeah. Um, and other courts didn't want to fool with it. You right. know, there weren't any local judges that were looking to start resentencing people. Everyone's right. like, oh, let's wait and see what the Supreme Court does. Well, my judge looked for the op, like was happy to hear when my attorney went and said we we're going to file for a, a 
uh, a hearing to, for a change in sentencing, he says, let's, but, let's set a date. I'm sure also, you know, I know what he told you originally, but I guarantee you the judge looked at what you, that you yes. did your time. You didn't let your time do you. You'd turn, totally turn your life around uh, or you've been, you know, on a straight and narrow other than the one time at Just Tech. That, that, <laughs> yeah. That's true. That he, he put all that stuff into the record and that obviously helped me. And so when the Montgomery decision came down, my attorney petitioned the parole board and said, you owe him a parole hearing. Uh, and at that point, the state of Louisiana had not issued, had not, the legislature hadn't changed any laws. Um, so he was arguing because of what the Supreme Court said, because his district court already sentenced him, you have to give him a parole hearing. Yeah. You can't hold the legislature's inaction against him. And the parole board Agreed, uh, and actually got an opinion from the attorney general's office that said I was parole eligible. Huh. And uh, I, you know, I go before the parole board in June of 2016, and I'll be honest with you. Even though I knew I was rehabilitated, yeah. knew if I if I get out, I'm gonna do well. Right. I still know I committed a horrible crime. Yeah. I'm still I was in my 30s. Right. Um, you know, still in my, I was 34. Um, I you know I'm telling myself. I'm going to be denied, and I'm preparing my family. I'm going right. to be denied, but this is the start of a process. Right. Yeah. And every couple of years, I'll be able to reapply. And in 10, 15 years, right. they're going to get tired of telling me no, yeah. and I'm going to come home one day. And I'm going to tell you all my biggest fear. I didn't say this in, in the first episode. My biggest fear while I was incarcerated wasn't about someone hurting me, wasn't about you know uh, being raped or being stabbed uh, or, or not even not getting out of prison. That wasn't my biggest fear. My biggest fear and what would keep me up at night was the fear that my parents would die oh, while I was incarcerated. Yeah. yeah, I get it. Because I've seen men whose whose parents died, and I, you know, I'll be, you know, mom's the last person with right. you. Um, and when mom goes, every you know, everyone else goes. And the, and they had you back. They had the whole time you were in prison. Day one, they didn't make excuses for me. Uh, but they 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 showed me love. They visited me. Shout, they answered out, shout my, out to your folks. Man. They answered my phone calls. Save big on brunch for mom. All in the Kroger app. Get sixteen ounce packs of flavorful Angus ninety percent lean ground sirloin for four ninety nine each with a digital coupon. Then buy two get two free on twelve packs of delicious Coca Cola, Pepsi, or Seven Up. All with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And uh, you know, my, my mom and dad, you know, just sustained me. I, I went to prison as a 15-year-old, and even though my body matured, there was part of my – I never went off to college. Right. I never got right. that first yeah, job. Yeah, that, that, that I, growth experience. I was um, emotionally dependent on my parents' love and affirmation. So, so much of me furthering my education and doing good things in prison was so when my parents come, come and visit me, I could say, guess, you know, guess what I'm doing. They could be proud. And, uh, and so I, I say all that to say that, you know, whenever I had the parole hearing, uh, you know, I, I would just, you know, I I prayed and, and I just prayed, you know, I know I'm not going to make it this time, but, but please, God, just let me, you know, let me come home while my parents are right. still alive, so then I can, I, I can be there for them as they've been for me for my whole life. And and luckily, um, you know, the that day um, I, I have a parole hearing, and generally they tell you after the hearing, you've been granted or you've been denied. They threw a curveball and they said, we want to take this under advisement. Oh. We're going to think about it. And you know, I understand it was a new. I was the first juvenile lifer. After Montgomery, with a parole hearing, they, you know, the parole board generally doesn't hear at that point murderers going up for parole. Right. Um, so you know, I go back to my life in prison. I tell myself, "You're going to be denied. You're going to get a, a letter in the mail in 30 days that said, you know, we've, you've been denied. Apply again in two years." I'm back on the range crew. Um, I, I'm. I'm back doing my job. I'm worrying about cattle. I'm worrying about inventories. Um, and I remember it was uh, 1030 on Thursday, June 9th. Uh, my, my supervisor is a guy named Alan Barton. And uh, June 9th, 2016, his phone rings. 
And he answers it, and he looks at me, and I could tell whatever the the call was about. It was, it was about me. And uh, so I'm wondering, what's this about? And nowhere did it come into my mind, this has something to do with parole. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. And he hangs up the phone. And he looks at me, and he says, pack your shit. And in prison, when you hear pack your shit— it, it it's usually one of a couple things, but it could also mean you're going to the cell block. Right. It could be, it mean, you're getting swung. The other one is you're going, you're going home. home. But I didn't, this is how much I, I didn't allow myself to believe I was going home. I was prepared to go home. <laughs> you thought you I, did something wrong. I'm immediately like in that split second. What are the things? Uh, uh, the, <laughs> Do they know right. I brought a brick of community right. coffee right. back to the dorm to give to this old time? You know, like oh what? What do they know? I got some extra chicken out the right. kitchen, right. and he says you're making parole, and I was just like, wait, what? He's like, the parole board granted you, wow. and you're re- you're releasing now. Oh, what? And he's like, and so I lived at the office at the range crew. Um, we we were at the lake house yeah. uh, at, at the hog lot, you know this prison jargon, and I have like eighty percent of my properties out there because I go back to the dorm to sleep, right, and then come back to work and work all day. Yeah. And, and he says, "Pack your stuff," and I was like, "I was like, man, I, if this is like a bad message, I don't want to pack all my stuff." And right. So let's go. Let me go to the camp and see. He's like, mm, "I'm not bringing you back. You're going home." So it took me going to the camp. Mm, and then give, giving me my release papers to sign yeah. before I believed it. And they oh, said, uh, do you They said, do you want to call anyone? I said, yeah, I want to call my mom. Uh, so I call mom. They give me the phone. I call my mom. She answers. And I said, hey, do you know anything about me? And she says, yeah, I, you go, you, we're coming to get you. Uh, and I said, oh, how man. long have you? So my mom knew one hour before I did. Wow. Uh, my attorney called her from the parole board to say, hey, the parole board just called me in to say that they're granting uh-huh. Andrew's parole. So it was great that my mom knew for an hour, an hour before I called her. Right. You know, she knew she was wow. waiting on that call. My sister had just graduated medical school. My parents really? were packing her up, getting ready to send her off for a residency. So just thinking, like, my younger sister uh, – Finished medical school, they're packing her up, and in the same at the same time, their son's releasing from He's prison. Yeah. So I was told. I was told. Day. I was told that ten thirty. Like I got up that morning thinking, I'm, you know, I, I may die here. I may get out in a few years. Right. At ten thirty, they said you're going home today at four o'clock. I was walking out the front gate with my wow. family. And my One of the few for the first time outside of uh, outside since you were fifteen, outside right. of the gay scene, going right. The so I'm told, uh, you know, packing all, getting on all my stuff gathered, and all these old timers and these juvenile lifers who've been there all this time are coming up to me. We're so happy for you, yeah. man. We're man, this is awesome. And I remember thinking to myself, man, how much grace. That they have because if I was in their shoes, right, I, I would be saying, "Why this guy?" Yeah, I mean, right, right. and people try to sabotage people getting out yeah. uh, sometimes in pr- of prison. This guy's you only know? been here nineteen years. Like, right. why is he getting out? Yeah. So you would almost think there'd be jealousy there, and, and yeah, and I'm sure there was, but guys were like just showing me so much love. And the last two guys I talked to before I get out were two juvenile lifers. One had been in for 40 years. One had been in for 50 years. Wow. And they say, you're going to be the guy that helps the rest of us get out. And I didn't. Th- I don't think they meant literally. Yeah. But, like, yeah. you're going to get out and you're going to show that people can get second chances. Huh. Man, do well. And I was like, man, I'm so sorry that it's me. And they're like, no, nah, no, nah, man, get the hell out of here. You're going to do right. well. And we're, we're driving down, you know, that road that I didn't know if I'd ever Go leave. Back again. Yeah. And my sister asks me, well, now what? And you know, I had all these plan, you know, plans on paper. Yeah. But now it's like, oh, now it's real. It's yeah. real. And I told them that what came to me is, I've got to find a way to help people. I've got to find a way to help these people that I've left behind. Yeah. So through through that guilt of leaving my friends behind was born Louisiana Parole Project. Wow. wow. And what a beautiful project! And we're going to get into that. Um, I do want to say. Because I sense you had a little bit of guilt with you that you were the first and there were these people that in your mind are, are more deserving because they had spent longer time and and all of that. 
you know, for me, it, looking from the outside, I think um, you had a lot of, and you, I don't even know if you felt this pressure, but I would have thought you would have had a lot of pressure on you because anybody who was against that ruling is watching you to wait for you to fail, right? I, y'all going to see. Y'all going to see. They let these guys out and watch what happens. You're going to screw up again. Um, wow, are you, were you the total opposite of that, number one? Uh, probably far exceeded even, uh, you know, people with the best of intentions, expectations. And that's so that's what we want to get into. But you did. You you were the first, and that was great. But you also were carrying a heavy burden, just like those guys told you. You're gonna get, you're gonna be the one that they use as the example. So I'm sure in the back of the mind they were thinking, be a good example, you right. know, because you can screw it up for all of us. <laughs> and right. so uh, and so you were you were just that. Now uh, I want you to tell us about your your parole project and the Louisiana Parole Project and what it does and and the value of that for these uh, released. Uh, convicts, inmates, people. Right. What so it, so I come home in, in June of 2016. I recognize, you know, my dad gives me a truck. Uh, you know, I, I have, I, I, I knew I couldn't go back to Eunice, Louisiana. Right. Small, everyone knew me for the worst right. thing I did. They either loved me or hated me, but there weren't opportunities there. And I wanted to go to college. And heck, I was 34 years old getting out of prison from this life sentence smart guy. I've already earned these credits and like testament to the prison system. Like <clears throat> I felt getting out like, man, I've earned all these credits. I have to go to college. Whereas if I wouldn't have had those opportunities, I might look and go, damn, I'm not ready to invest four years of my life. I got to mm-hmm. go, go into the job market right away. So I, I, I enrolled for college right away, but then, you know, I started telling people, man, I want to find a way to help these guys. I realize I'm coming out and with this ruling, I'm just the first. There are going to be other people coming home. How do we, like, create opportunities for people when they come home? I'm going to be okay because my family is going to make sure that I have opportunities to be successful. I had built a network for myself in prison that I know, hey, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to take advantage of this network to, to find a good job and, and, and to hang around good people and have, uh, you know, volunteer opportunities. The guys coming home – and, you know, I had enough common sense to know that, hey, the first few people who come home are going to affect it for everybody. So we need to make sure the first guys who come home are successful so that stakeholders, you know, namely parole board, governor, judges, keep giving people chances. So this was an abstract idea. Uh, and, and, you know, literally just, just starting building it out from my experience, from the experience of the first few people that came home, what did they struggle with when they first come home? Uh, and we've built a program. Our mission, we're, we're a nonprofit organization, so I had to figure out how to build a nonprofit organization, <laughs> how to set it up. Not easy. The first, my first job was actually someone clued me into working uh, at Point Capi Detention Center. I taught pre-release at the detention center for short timers. There's, there's a curriculum uh, and it's actually this curriculum I taught in the inside at Angola at Camp F in, in, my, in my spare time. Um, so I have a job. My first paycheck goes to, like, uh, chartering the organization with the Secretary of State's office and the local clerk of court's right. office. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, <clears throat> applying to the IRS for the 501c3 status. Yeah. All that costs money. Right. And so I'm just figuring out, you know, the administrative part of building the organization in you know asking funders for money, it's a chicken before the egg. I'd say, hey, we're gonna, this is what we're going to do. Well, funders would say, well, what have you done? Well, I haven't done anything. What we need you for? We need the funds. <laughs> we'll come back to us whenever you've done something, right. and then so yeah. it was a lot of volunteer work. Uh, you know, part time going to college, uh, and and then finally we had a couple funders that took a chance on us. I mean, fast forward. From 2016 to today, uh, we operate a residential reentry program in Baton Rouge. Um, we work with people who, who've been convicted all over the state that are coming home. Uh, and, and we work with people who've done 20 years or more, all right, because uh, we recognize these are guys who are more likely to listen to their peers. And it's a, it's a, a peer mentorship program. 
Same concept with AA. If you're an alcoholic who's going to AA, your sponsor is going to be another alcoholic who's been through it. And so we had the same mindset. We're going to have people who've come out of prison who've been successful mentoring other people who come out of prison. And initially that was, you know, that was an odd mindset for law enforcement, for probation and parole, for DOC, because their job's usually keeping ex-cons away from each other. Yeah. But uh, today we own and operate uh, nine transitional houses in Baton Rouge. We own these homes outright. Seven houses for men, two houses for women. When they come home from prison, uh, you know, we're giving them a safe, stable place to stay. We have rules. We have expectations. Uh, But some of the things, you know, our clients have served 20, 30, 40, 50 years in prison. So it started out with these juvenile lifers coming home. And the legislature passed a bill in 2017 that also allowed something we call, some people call it 40-year lifers, some people call it disco lifers. There's a group of about 120 lifers during the 70s that had parole eligibility before the legislature in 79 made life life without parole. So there was a bill that restored parole eligibility to some of those guys. Wow. And women. I didn't so even we, know about that. We helped some of them get back out. Wow. And... The governor's been signing commutations, and a big part of why he's signing commutations is because we say, hey, if you if you give this person a second chance, our program's going to help them rebuild their life. And he took a couple chances on people, and uh, he's been signing more and more commutations. You know, he's, he's in the last year he's in office. Last week he signed commutations for 12 lifers. Those wow, people wow. are going to come through our program. So to date um, – since 2016, we've had over 370 men and women wow. who were weren't once serving life or de facto life sentences have gotten out of prison. And I know people hearing this go, wait a minute, 370 lifers? Yep, 370 lifers and de facto lifers, people sentenced to 50 years, 99 right, years, right. 200 years, have come home. The reason you haven't heard about it is because they're not going back to prison. Because they had made Period. They had made you just summed that up. Re-offended, yes. Right? Our, our recidivism rate is, one, is one is one percent. One percent, y'all. But, Let that sink but, in. But you got to give them the other side of the scale. The average, just on general recidivism rate, is in the in the forty percent range. Yeah, right? yeah. Which means almost one out of two they get out without Andrew's program are going to offend again. And I'm sorry. Go ahead. And and, and having you know had that you know I, I said this to y'all. Before we went on air, I have a unique perspective where I did time. I'm a criminal justice right. practitioner, right. and I got my master's degree in criminology. So right. one thing I learned actually getting the book education is when we hear like one, almost one out of two people return to prison, right. the problem is it's the same couple guys mm-hmm. that go back and forth, uh, back and yeah. forth, yeah. and they actually and drive, it, and it they drive triples the number. Yeah, yeah, quadruples the number. <laughs> but regardless, regardless, take those guys out of the equation. Your your one percent is a is stupid crazy number. So when we in, get in a good way, we get someone out of we start working with our clients before they're released. So let, let's let's do it like this. You showed a picture of two people that you picked up yesterday. Tell us what the process is going to be from them before from where you start until um hopefully where it is sure so two two lifers came home yesterday one served 41 years one served 38 years we started meeting with them months ago when we knew they had opportunities to come home uh one was given a commutation by the governor uh went through the pardon process successfully uh, the other guy was actually resentenced uh, by the Orleans district attorney um, because it was determined that he was over incarcerated. He was someone after reviewing his case, they decided that he was less culpable than his co-defendants and he, he shouldn't mm-hmm. have got a life sentence. So they made a deal with him. He, he pled guilty to time served, came home. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, we started working with him, you know, and this just, just how much, what our organization's reputation is. We go in. I was going to say, you got to go to Angola and the warden lets us in to go and see guys and and prepare because they know we're not going in to bring in contraband. We're not trying to, to get anyone to escape. We're trying to get people out the right way, but we've got to go and prepare them for what to expect. And to be frank, I've got to go in and determine 
is this someone I want to help? Right. Not everyone who applies to be our client, we accept. Yeah. We, we turn down a lot of people, and I, we look at the prison record, and we also read between the lines, having done time, yeah. someone who's done time or worked at Angola. Can real knows real. real, real. <laughs> As they say. And, and we want to make sure that it's someone who's, who's taken responsibility for their actions and addressed the things that brought them to prison and bettered themselves and they're ready to come home. And people are like, you're different at 25 than you were at 15. You're a different person at 35. You're a different person at 45. A lot, a lot of my clients are 60 and 70 year old men who are taking up unnecessary space at Angola. If you're judged by your worst mistake you ever made, everybody would hate everybody. Everybody stop for a second. Think about the worst mistake you've ever made. And then think about if everybody knew about that, if they'd hate you or strongly dislike you. People change. So we pick our clients up at the front gate of the prison when they're released. We bring them to our program. Uh, we, you know, our clients, things we all take for granted. They've never used a cell phone. Right. They've never used a debit card. They've never paid for gas at the pump. They've probably never opened a bank account. Um, they, who has been incarcerated for decades and still has their birth certificate and their social right. security card. These people, if they came home and didn't have the support, they just crumble. Like, where do I start? And their families, many of them have outlived their families. Yeah. The ones who do have families, families love them, but they don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. So we, our job is to prepare people to be successful. We're not like, we're, we're not putting people up for life and giving them a place to stay. Right. We're, we're training people to be self-sufficient. Like a transition. It's a transition. We want you to learn the skills you need. I give someone their first cell phone they've ever had. And they're going to be, they're going to be like minds, right? after a week, they're going to be like a 10 year old uh, with the first yeah. home. So now we got to teach you how to put the phone down. Right. Now we've got to teach you what workplace etiquette is. We've got to right. teach you that when you went to prison, what was considered flirting is considered harassment. harassment. Yeah. Yeah. We've got to teach you what, you know, this institutionalization that you've had, you know, hey, in society, we're more accepting of different people, different ideas. You've got to let that old thinking go. And a lot of guys obviously come home with skills. And now we're we're mad mad skills. Especially trade skills. So what we're looking to do and got and I shouldn't just say guys. We we work with women too. Mm -hmm. And so once they go through our initial program, we feel confident. Now we're working to find them jobs. We give them transportation. We're going to transport them to their parole officer. We're going to transport them to their job. We bring them to the grocery store. We bring them to their medical appointments. Initially, hey, we're going to take care of all your needs. Now we're going to teach you how to be self-sufficient. Our goal is we're turning tax burdens into taxpayers. We're not just getting people out and saying we're saving the state money because that's one less person you have to pay for. Mm. We're we're turning these people into taxpayers. And then we're not just turning them into taxpayers when they're working. We're getting them volunteer opportunities. They're volunteering in the communities they live. I tell clients, go join a church. Some of them say, hey, I'm not into church. And I say, you go find you a church, find you an AA group, find you some group. Start showing up. After you're there three or four times, someone's going to recognize you and say, hey, you want to go to lunch? Hey, tell me about yourself. Integrate them into the community. So when people get in trouble, nine times out of ten, it's because – their family doesn't know what they're doing. There are no connections. What we find that's worked is we want all these tentacles into them. I'm going to tell you, we're a parole officer's best friend uh, mm-hmm. because our parole officers have no problems with their clients because oftentimes a guy's out on parole and that, you know, mama may not know where you're at, but that parole officer is yeah. keeping in contact with you. A parole project client. These are people who were convicted of the worst crimes. Yeah. And they're the most successful group out there. And then the, 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 the mode is, you know, some of our clients who've come out been successful. We've had people start their own small business. We have homeowners, state employees, uh, carpenters, welders, cooks, the people you, you, you walk into Walmart and you don't realize the guy who's checking out next to you just got out of prison doing 30 years. Um, You know, you're in church. The person in the pew next to you is someone who came home. And that's the point. What what does someone who's been in prison look like? Um, And we want, you know, we're training them to, to not only to blend in, but to give back to the community. So what I would say is we've proven in Louisiana, 
a place where life without parole is something that is exactly what it means. And we've just accepted that, well, we give people life and we can't let them out because they've done something so bad they can't get out or we keep them there so long they can't adjust to society. We're proving that wrong and we're proving that and, and this isn't this isn't like a bleeding heart speech because because I'm I'm not a bleeding heart. Uh, I don't believe you know there is a reason we have prisons. There's a reason we hold people accountable. But we can hold people accountable, and then we can take a look back and see is someone worth redemption? Is someone rehabilitated? Someone worth a second chance? And it's a resounding yes. And there's a way that you can support someone. And, and one thing I hate to hear is he's been in so long. How can we let him out? And what I say is shame on us as a society. If we keep someone in prison so long, the reason we can't let them out (laughs) is because we've kept them in prison so long. That's a great way of putting it. And you know what I think your nonprofit does more than anything else is the same thing that uh, you get inside prison from the staff if they're doing it right. Hope. The biggest reason that people reoffend in my opinion is they try other things they hit a bunch of roadblocks and it's the only thing they know if you have a felony on your record and you go apply for a job and you have to disclose that felony and you do you're doing the right thing it's hard it, it, and look i'm not saying they didn't earn the right to to have to struggle with that but it's it's hard for people to give you a second chance um, it is not easy and I'm not someone that t- lived in that life, but I've seen a lot of people pass through my life that have had that struggle and I've seen people turn back to the only thing they know because it's the only way they can make money is by slinging drugs or doing whatever it was that put them in prison to begin with. Um, you know, your program is really helping them adjust in teaching them that there's another way because anybody who's respected, even the worst of us, when you're respected for the right things, for being a good person, uh, paying your taxes, all those things, um, it's, you have a self-respect that you don't want to go back to that life. Right. And then second chance also hugely important. You just hit on yeah, people come out and they can't get the jobs or, or people are like, I'm not hiring a, a con, right? Through Second Chance, through your program, the somebody did take a chance, right? Mm-hmm. And and the, they probably got the best damn employee in the world. And they're like, can you give me like 10 more of them? Uh, I, <laughs> I was about to say two yeah. points I want to respond yeah. to as it, as it relates to Second Chances. Yeah. There is not an employer that we've gotten someone connected to you know, a lot of times it's a lot of work right. yeah. getting this employer to take a chance. And I un- understand it. He's got to think, how's the public going to feel about it? How are my other employees right. going to feel right. about it? There's not an employer who doesn't come back and say, hey, Thank if you me. have another guy, hey, I'd, I'd be willing to hire another guy. We have multiple employers, uh, car dealerships in Baton Rouge, right. state government agencies that have multiple clients working for them. As it relates to Hope. Uh, you know, we, we talked about Warden Kane, the, the current warden of Angola, Tim Hooper, uh, is, is really a good man and he's doing, doing good things up there. But as it relates to hope, prisoner on staff violence is down at Angola. Prisoner on prisoner violence is down at Angola. Participation in educational and self-help programs are up. Why is that? Because people in Angola are seeing people go home and not only go home, but they're seeing them stay home and stay successful. And, and they, they know guys success guys communicate and it gives people hope. And it's I often, a light at the end of the tunnel. What I, what I tell people, even the hardest person who says, I don't like believe in any of this lock, lock them up. Why should I care about prison conditions? So if you don't care about the thousands of people who live in Angola, care about the employees who work there, that's right. Because they should they should go into a safe environment. And what I can tell you is it's a safer place to work whenever there are people going home right. and where there is hope in the prison. And Absolutely. hope's a good thing. Absolutely. That's this is a damn good episode. Uh, one more thing. Story. I'm like, this, this blows me away. Chills. 
how can people help, help support say, your tell, tell your us, program? Say say the full name, and we'll, we'll, we're going to we'll link all of put that, all too. The links and everything, and we're going to put it across all our stuff because I believe what you're doing is really awesome. But the all they are a nonprofit, and the uh, and you you fund it through donations and stuff, right? And grants, yeah. Yeah. grants, and grants, and, and and individual donations. So our our, our name is Louisiana Parole. Project. Our website is paroleproject.org. You can find us on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Parole Project. Check us out. You'll see. If you're wondering what does someone look like coming out of prison, uh, take a look at our social media. You, you'll see we, we call it the money shot is the guy walking out of the front gate. <laughs> I love hey, it. I'm going to follow it. Money shot. When we leave the and, city, I'm going to go follow and, it. And uh, the, you know, people can donate to our organization yes. online. Uh, at, you know, paroleproject.org, you know, your donation, no matter how large or small, helps us uh, buy someone coming out of prison a pair of shoes, helps right. someone uh, go to driving school. Right. So they, you know, fund the cost of getting their driver's license, gets people started. You know, that's what we use all our, our we are a nonprofit organization uh, and, and all of our money goes to supporting people. It's a good investment. What I could tell you is, is it costs taxpayers thousands of dollars to keep people in prison for for life the older you get yeah, the, the more, more expensive costs, it, right. it costs doubles it, it, it does and uh, so it's it's a it's a good return on the investment we 100%. we are we have been ill served uh, by by politicians who have you know fostered the idea that keeping people in prison forever makes us safer we've led the country in incarceration yes. because of life sentences and, and it didn't affect crime. Right. And uh, the people who are committing crimes today are not the guys getting out of Angola. Right. Yeah. So there, there's a difference when we hear some people are like, oh, I'm not into these reforms that are happening. What I can tell you is without a doubt, because I see it, I work with these guys. They're not the guys committing crime. They're, yeah. they're the guys who are paying taxes, giving back to their community. Well, thank you for that, and, yeah. and keep up the good work on that end. One more thing before we let you get out of here. Uh, you got a child and a wife yeah, now, right. and yeah, we yeah. haven't even mentioned that. His wife's a doctor, y'all. How right. about that? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm a lucky man. Uh, God's you know shown me a lot of favor, uh, but the best job like I've ever had now is I'm dad to an 11-month-old daughter. Oh, Beautiful. Congratulations. And uh, it's, it's just it's been a wonderful experience. Yeah. Congratulations. Well, keep keep killing it, man. Hey, keep killing it. You know doing, doing the good work. I would like to ask you back again sometime. Please. And, and yeah. so because this is that guy, Miles. Yeah. This is important. and Very uh, important. Uh, thank you. Right. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, we appreciate uh, you. Uh, thank you. Favorite uh, episode we've ever done. Episodes, actually, that we've ever done. Yeah, it was great. We hope y'all enjoyed this. And uh, and so we're not, you know, follow the patron, uh, subscribe to us. If you'd like more information, and hopefully you would, on the LPP, uh, we're going to link all of that in the description of this podcast. So just scroll down. You'll see it there. You can click hey, on and, it, and, it and help. And when you hear it, if you move like I was – Share it because we want everybody to know this That's story. important. Yes. And we've told you it's always be something different coming out of That's Angola. Right. And this is as far in the positive spectrum as we've ever been. 100%. And until next time, Andrew, I'm Jim thank you. Chapman. And I'm Woody Overton. Your host of Bloody Angola. A podcast 142 years in the making. The complete story of America's bloodiest prison. Peace. Straight line, shackled chain. Oh, gruesome Gertie is calling my name. There is no mercy in this penitentiary. Just ask the Hill String Gang, Wrangle Three.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.